Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day. A special uh, word of, of happiness and happy Mother's Day to my mother-in-law, Anne, who's here in the second row. Happy Mother's Day, my mother-in-love. Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day to my mom, who is watching uh, at home in, in Oakland, California, and uh, especially uh, my wife, my beautiful wife, Cheryl, mother of our two children. Happy Mother's Day, sweetheart. I love you. Well, I also want to give thanks to another mom and uh, someone who served our congregation faithfully with our children's ministry with KidVenture for a number of years, Sean Scorup. We want to give her great thanks. She's ending her time serving uh, on staff, and she's pursuing her, her, her first career as a nurse full-time. So thank you to Sean and for her service and for ongoing service in God's kingdom. Very, very thankful. I heard there was a a party uh, last night to celebrate her. Uh, I picked up the mail yesterday and uh, was expecting one thing and not expecting the other. The thing I expected, we've started getting, we're in that time of year where we're starting to get letters from colleges interested in, in possibly Jonathan being recruited to their school. So we have a pile, dad has a pile of those uh, envelopes. I get that one. I got this one. I wasn't expecting this quite yet. A notification of member benefits from AARP. Come on. My, my mom said to me this morning, I can't believe my baby's 50, but wow. That's, uh, that's news, but uh, the folks at the first service gave me, told me all about all the incredible benefits and blue-eyed specials and early bird specials and, you know... Older is better sometimes, right? We, we make such a big thing about youth, but older can be better. So, transition to our series, Welcome to Ephesians Part 3, God's New Society. Did you know that the Apostle Paul wrote all of his epistles, that's just a fancy way of saying letters, he wrote all of his letters in the Bible before any of the Gospels were written. Did you know that? And even as I said, older is better. The closer you are to the source material, the closer you are to the actual events, the more accurate, the more impact, the more powerful that testimony, that insight may be. And it might be quite interesting for you to consider this. So, for instance, Paul's first letter is to the church in Corinth. We believe it was written around uh, 55 AD. So about 35 years after Jesus uh, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. Paul writes his first letter to the church in Corinth. And in that letter, he says, of all the things, the incredible things of the gospel, he says, these are historical facts. You can come visit us in Jerusalem. You can meet people who were actually there. They're still alive. 55. His last letter, 2 Timothy, is dated around 67. His letter to his, his people, his his uh, young protege coming up, 2 Timothy, written around 67, a year before Paul was executed in Rome. That's the timeline, 55 to 67. The book of Ephesians that we're studying all spring and summer, the letter, the epistle, was written around 61 to 62. Where were you in 61 or 62? Anyone? Wasn't even uh, a thought yet. How about the Gospels? When were the Gospels written? Well, the earliest known understanding when the Gospel of Mark 
was written. The, the best thinking that our, uh, our theologians and historians have dating it around 66 to 74. So 35 years on from these events. Matthew, written in the 80s. Luke Acts, Dr. Luke wrote both the Gospel of, of Luke and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Church. That was around 85. Where were you in 85? John, the last of the Gospels, written in the late 80s to early 90s. So when we read the letter to the Ephesians, we're, we're actually going forward in the New Testament narrative, but we're actually then going backwards. We're going closer, earlier in the chronological timeline. My, my dear friend, best man at my wedding, and I, his theologian, Julian Smith, states the implications of this this way. Quote, we are, he says, reading the Gospels through lenses Paul ground. You know, when I got saved, I was 18, and I just thought, wow, just give me more Jesus. I just want to know more Jesus. I get, someone gave me one of those Bibles with the red letter Bibles. You ever have one of those? Like the, the things that Jesus said were written in red, that's what's most important. But this is a real aha kind of moment here. All of Scripture is most important. All of what the Apostle Paul writes informed, influence, was reflected upon in the writings of the oral tradition of, of Jesus' teaching. So the gospel writers sit down and I think, we need to get this down in writing. We need to, to talk to those who are there. By the way, those that were there and those that are in this new church were very much informed by the apostle. And let's get those things in writing. When we see it that way, we understand there's no difference between the teachings of Jesus and Paul. They sync up throughout all of Scripture. Real aha moment for me, and maybe for you as well. So here is the Apostle Paul. He's the most famous, the most notorious prisoner in Rome. He's in chains, and yet we know that he was allowed visitors. People were able to come and, and visit him uh, there in Rome. He had been the pastor in Ephesus for a couple of years. Here he is now in Rome, 1,200 miles away. And he has the interest of a pastor in what has happened in a former church. I can relate. I can totally relate to that. Mabel Valley Church is the third church that I've served uh, as lead pastor. And I'm always curious to know, well, what's happened? What's going on out in Minneapolis? So I just learned this week that Knox Church is now part of ECO, our denomination, ECO. Praise God for that. Big praise for that. And Damien Carter is a, a, a dear soul from a church in Germantown, Maryland. I just talked to him just two weeks ago. Damien, what's the latest? What's happening at Nielsville? And he gives me all the rundown of what's happening. Church is thriving there uh, with their new pastor. And so here we can imagine Paul asking those visitors, what's happening on the ground in Ephesus and in the churches, in the house churches in the surrounding area? And out of that, he writes this letter. And it follows a very typical pattern of Paul. He's a pastor, but he's also kind of a fiery preacher and theologian. But he starts his letter here and elsewhere very warm. So happy to, to address you. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just wants to shower this 
wonderful prayer of praise to God. So all of his letters start off warm, upbeat, encouraging, and then he drops the hammer later, right? Then, then the hard teaching, the hard truths, the, the correction or the, or the exhortation comes in later, and, and Ephesians is, is just like that, starting out very, very positive. He starts with this one long, run-on sentence in the Greek, 200 words. There's no punctuation in the Greek. It's one sentence, no commas, no, no uh, sentence structure of praise to God, of doxology, of, of just singing out praises for all that is ours, our spiritual blessings in Christ through his finished work on the cross. That's, that's those first verses, 3 to 14. And then there's a transition and then from verses 15 to 23, another long run-on sentence, but this time, praise for God, and now this time, prayer for the church, that the church would continue to praise God, that the church would, would know the Father, that the church would turn their affections onto Christ. Now, rather than trying to unpack that entire prayer today, we're going to put that off to next week, and I just want to look at the introductory or transitional verses. Look with me at verse 15 and 16, Ephesians chapter 1, just two verses this morning, so you can get on to your plans if you've got reservations or whatever you're planning for for Mother's Day. Verse 15, for this reason, that is in light of everything that that I've just said of of the great blessings that are ours in Christ, for this reason, and because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I want to take your attention now to talk about prayer. Prayer is vital. Prayer is essential to your spiritual well-being and the well-being and the unity and the peace and the purity and the mission and the impact of the church. Prayer is simply communicating with God. God has spoken to us most clearly in his word. So he speaks to us and we respond. It's a conversation. It's communication with God. And here Paul speaks to that and he says, I pray for you and unceasingly, uh, abundantly, I don't stop praying for you. And then next week we'll look at the prayer. But I want to just consider for just a moment, these first two verses. Look again with me at verse 15. For this reason, referencing the spiritual blessings in Christ, verses 3 to 14, and the report he's heard of two characteristics. So of all these blessings, it's more than just things that we know that we ascribe to. There's something that's worked out into their lives, these two characteristics that he's heard reports of. What are the two? Faith and love. At the end of the day, any kind of testimony or feedback or check-in or how's it going out there about a church or family or an individual walking with Jesus, you want to see and hear and know of two things. Their faith, the condition of their faith, and the manner of of their love. And when Paul says he hears this, he says, Wow, I will keep praying for you. He's just jazzed to pray because he, he knows their trust in Jesus is solid. 
It's not on shaky ground. And they're outpouring love toward, toward whom? Towards some? No, towards all followers of Jesus, right? He'll say in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, vaccinated or unvaccinated. All of you, that killed it the first service, all of you (laughs) united together in Christ, showing this love for one another. One of the interesting things in in the Greek, there's many copies that we have of the scriptures. This letter would have been uh, uh, carefully meticulously copied and passed on so that it could circulate. And some of the earliest copies, the, not to get too much into the grammar, but it actually kind of communicates that he heard of, of their faith in Jesus and love for Jesus, but also the faith and love for one another. So it wasn't just love, but it's also there's a faith towards one another. There's a, a trust that he hears of that's sort of implied there. So Paul's in prison. A visitor comes. He says, give me the latest. He says, Paul, these people get it. They get it. They, they've been through some stuff. The, the hard trials have come, just as you said it would come, just as we know Jesus told them would come, and they are thriving. They're, they're not fragile. They're not falling apart. They are sticking together, and their faith in the master is strong. And we know it's strong, Paul, because their love is genuine. They are genuinely putting themselves in harm's way. They are sacrificing for one another. Paul, they believe the kingdom of God is real. God's new society, this new thing God's doing, turn the world upside down or really right side of this counterculture of the church, it's happening. Paul, we are a family. Our motto as a church here at MVC is, we are family. And that must be more than just a slogan or a motto on a t-shirt. I believe it's much more than that. And I know that you do too. Because I see the faithfulness of this church, and I see the love that you have for one another and the impact you want to have in the community, that we treat one another more than just a collective of people that show up uh, on Sundays or occasionally here and there, but we treat one another as brother, as sister. And Paul would say to Ephesians, and I would say to us, we want to see that more and more. When I head out this summer for a study sabbatical, I want to share the news of what's happening here at MVC. There's two factors to that kind of family. Two characteristics that we see here, and I've already, I've already mentioned them, faith and love. I think there's a very simple calculation, a very simple mathematical calculation. It has to remain simple because I barely made it through Algebra 2, and this week, Jonathan took AP calculus and chemistry. So his, his calculation would be far more complicated. I want to keep it simple. Faith times love equals responsibility. That's really what Paul's talking of here. If we're going to be part of a family, God's new society, the church, capital C, beyond an institution, we have to take responsibility in our unity, our sacrifice, our service, 
our evangelism, the Say Yes campaign to, to fill out the need for Sunday school teachers, we must take responsibility. The reputation of the church in Ephesus and the church here in Maple Valley, Maple Valley rests on the expression and the depth and the reach of our faith and our love. It's got to be deeper than a T-shirt and more than skin deep. It must be resilient to hard times, my friends. That means taking personal responsibility. You've heard from this pulpit for years and years to come a message of God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love. It's not what we do, it's what he has done. All that we have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings, election in, in time before time, our, our redemption, our adoption, all of it is to God's glory. We give him the praise. He's done it all for us. And yet we also must take personal responsibility. This is a message from my mom to me many years ago. You find meaning in life by taking more responsibility in your life. I wonder, we focus so much and what we should on grace, because we don't want to turn into man-made religion, but let's not toss out the concept of the things that we need to do in putting our faith into action and our love into action, which I think equals responsibility. And when someone says, gosh, what's the meaning of my life? Where am I headed in life? How do I figure it out? We'd say this lesson that our moms taught us, take personal responsibility. Make your bed. Brush your teeth. Finish your homework. You are responsible for your life. You have responsibility, my friends, for your own spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical well-being. You run your life. You manage your time. You are the superintendent of your thinking. Like All these things that you're thinking, the things you're dwelling on, the things you're worrying about, the things you're fixated on, I can't fix that or change that into you. You must do it yourself. Not a message we hear from the pulpit often, is it? You say, just trust in Jesus. Give it to him. God will take control. But there's the other side of it is personal responsibility. What does it look like today for you individually? The choices you make, the habits you form, inform your life. And it needs to start here with trusting in the right person that is Jesus and directing love in the right direction towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I would say this, I don't believe we can say I'm a faithful follower of Jesus and yet not be responsible for taking up something every single day, something heavy, I don't know, what would Jesus call it? Something heavy we should be responsible for. A cross and following him. Not saying letting someone else do it for us every day. See how I started kind of warm and then it gets kind of intense? Sort of try to follow Paul's pattern here. All of that I think is kind of crammed into verse 15. Okay, verse 16. <laughs> I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I love that the Apostle Paul is modeling to the people a life of prayer. 
It's encouraging to know that a pastor would pray. Encouraging even more, someone as important as Paul, an apostle who had many, many churches and many, many responsibilities. He says, I'm remembering you in prayer. Be encouraged by that, but also follow my example. The vital, essential nature of ongoing prayer. Yesterday, our elders met for session Saturday. It happens once a quarter. Once a quarter, the elders meet on a Saturday morning. There's no business. It's time for prayer, fellowship, Bible study. And I'll tell you, through COVID, it's been very, very challenging. Trying to do that type of work, that type of community building online, it just doesn't really connect. But this was the first time we could be together in the hospitality room, which is a room just off the lobby. We we're all, almost all of us were able to gather in person. Rich Craig is in uh, uh, Spokane for Taylor's graduation from Gonzaga today. Yay, Taylor. Yay, yay. So he was on screen with a Zoom call. And we started with lifting up uh, word of praise and prayer for our church's adopted son, Riker, who will turn six years old. this Thursday. And then I, I wanted to think of a way that would be creative to get into, uh, into prayer. You know, just say, okay, great. Let's, uh, let's just jump into three hours of prayer. Like, so let's, how do we warm up? Let's warm up, right? So I shared with the elders two of the practices that I'm going to be engaged in daily uh, through my summer study leave sabbatical. The first is called the Kairos Daily Journal. This is a gift from Barbara Gilbert. A wonderful journal. I don't know. Same I like to journal. I don't like to journal. Dear diary, today I had a lollipop. Who cares? But this is a, a journal. It helps uh, you think through what you're studying in God's word and put those thoughts, those ideas, those encouragements, those kairos moments. It's like an aha, eureka moment on the page. And so I printed out some of those pages and explained to the elders what that was. And then I handed them copies from, and write this down and pick it up, We'll pick up a case. The elders said, we need to get this in the hands of everyone in our church. Face to Face by Kenneth Boa. It's a little paperback book that has just straight scripture, but written in a way that you can read through and pray through prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving. But the scripture is is all there on the page in the first person. So it's guiding you into prayer. They took a half an hour, went and prayed. We came back, we got into God's word. They helped me write my sermon for next week. So all the wise stuff you hear next week will be what the elder shared on, on a Saturday morning. All the wisecracks will be stuff that Todd Goldsmith said. Oh, Todd, that's, that's for you, buddy. And at the end of the time, a couple of the elders said, we need to do this more often than once a quarter. We need to be modeling this to our people. This is, this is the lifeblood of the church to grow our faith, to grow in love, we have to be a church of prayer, my people. It has to be not just prayer at the beginning of a meeting, at the end of the meeting, at the beginning of a meal, obligatory start of a session. It needs to be part and parcel. Paul's right, says, I'm praying consistently, regularly with you. Think about where we were back in October, weeks before the election. And there's a lot of tension around here about what was going to come in early November. And no one was 
unaffected by that time. I was down in Santa Barbara at the Eco uh, Second Retreat, the same thing that David just returned from that, that helps uh, the help for ordination candidates finishing their process to become uh, eco-pastors. So I was down in Santa Barbara, and one of our elders, Nate Strobel, gave me a call. Nate uh, and Tisa have led their small group for some 15 years, and uh, we've just uh, started being part of that community uh, most recently, but they've, they've seen all their kids grow up. A couple of them are already off to college, out of the house. Everyone's in high school. So they've been through many, many things. But he called me to say, this is a particularly difficult time right now. There are text messages flying back and forth about politics. And there's, well, let's just say the temperature is rising. We need to figure out what to do. Tension among uh, the brothers within that group. Tension between father, Todd, and his daughter, Katie. Tensions, I have permission to mention that. Just to paint this out to be a real thing. This is a real circumstance. And Nate and I put our, our heads together. We prayed about it. We said, let's start praying for each family in the group. Each day, a different family. Each day, there's seven families so far. The next seven days, there's no text messaging anymore. Let's cut out all the text messaging and let's just pray for one another, and then we'll gather together and sort things through. And I shared with you about that experience in my freezing garage, the guys meeting for a couple of hours to talk about politics and try to model to you how brothers can disagree, but they can have uh, conversations that aren't disagreeable. Let me report to you now, seven months on, with Nate's leadership, that daily prayer has continued. Every day of the week, a different family is assigned a different day, and we pray each morning for that family. The text messages are prayer requests, answers to prayer, cries for more prayer, hoorays for celebrations. And I say all this, and I take time to tell you about what the elders are doing and tell you about what just one small group is doing because we want to see this grow more and more here in our church and in your family. Luke writes down, the very words of Jesus when it comes to prayer in this, Luke 12, verse 30. Where Jesus says, your father knows what you need. He's talking about prayer. Your father in heaven knows what you need. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's speaking of God's new society. He's speaking of a trust in God. Jesus says, a father knows what you need before you pray for it. So why do we pray? Most of all, to get closer to God, to grow intimate with God. And this very prayer that we'll look at next week, verses 17 to 19, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that the eyes of their heart would open, this kind of sense of intimacy with God, that you draw closer to God. It's all about relationship. So friends, listen, prayer isn't about getting God to submit to your will. 
but submitting ourselves to his. Don't pray to get God to fit into your plans. Pray that you would fit into God's plans. How do we pray? We pray as we're talking to our loving parent. Someone asked me for prayer this week. I said, how can I pray for you? Well, this person concerns some medical things, said, well, I want to pray for, for healing, but I guess I should pray for God's will to be done. And I just want to say, no, pray for healing, because that's what God would want, right? But whatever the result then, say, Lord, but your will be done. Your Lord gives and takes away, whatever it is. But from the outset, you come running, you come running into your, into your house with a knee, with a scraped elbow. What do you say? I'd like to ask you to help me, but maybe I'm not sure that I should. No, I need help. Help me, God. This is the kind of praying that we need. And when we learn, prayer isn't about getting what we want from God, but about getting in line with what God wants. It's not God doing our plans, but giving ourselves to his. We'll find out that when we turn his plans into our prayers, they are consistently answered. For the sake of time, I just want to briefly mention that in passing, I had my first men's Bible study came to mind in, in Minneapolis. We started with, with two men meeting at a coffee shop at 6 in the morning in Minneapolis. It grew to a baker's dozen. And of all the things that we could choose to study, I was sort of a theology geek right out of seminary. We studied John Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> it's like this, this many pages. Written when he was 27 in Latin, later translated into French. I'm not going to go too far into it, but at 27, John Calvin was figuring out the same exercise that Paul is here in the book of Ephesians. The implications of being part of God's new society. The implications of being called family. And he talks at length about prayer. And just to briefly mention it in passing, because you'll study this in your small group, if you're in a small group, he gives six reasons for, for why we pray. Very briefly, to grow in our dependence on the Heavenly Father, in order to have right desires. He talks about the idea of desires that are holy desires in line with God's will. Increased gratitude, appreciating God's answers, whatever those answers are. Greater delight in God. And finally, the trust in God's providence, the trust that God is in control and God is working out his good purposes for our ultimate good and for his glory. But I'll end with this, and I know Lori's ready to come with her team. They can start coming up. 1 John 5, 14 to 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Friends, we don't pray to get God to fit into our plans. We pray to get ourselves to fit into his. And my prayer for us and as a church and for you at home is that we continue to grow into a praying church. Every church prays, but we want to be and continue to be a praying church, a a church where there's a culture of prayer. This has been an emphasis for our elders considering that I'm talking about prayer in the sanctuary, but also prayer in the lobby, out in the parking lot. You're at Fred Meyer, you're at QFC, you see someone 
from church and you pray for them. You check in with them. We check in consistently lifting one another up in prayer. And I'm very, very pleased to announce to you this morning, first time in 15 months, we will return to having prayer partners at the front of the sanctuary after the service. And Pastor David will give instruction, but really there's a bit of a social contract. It can be a little intimidating. What's going to happen when I come up? You come forward. We'll be socially distanced. Just simply offer your, your need, your desire, your prayer request, and a brief prayer. Why don't we just even start with half a minute prayer? What a great way to start your day. Let me pray for us now as we, as we continue to worship. Lord God, thank you for the culture of prayer. Thank you, Lord God, that, that faith and love equal responsibility. We need to be responsible for one another, Lord. We need to be in conversation with you. We need to be loving, truly loving one another as family. This is not an institution. This is not just some program, Lord God. All of what we do all of what we want to have impacted through our, our We Are Family campaign of expanding our classrooms is meant in order, Lord God, to further your love into this community. So, Lord, we ask your blessing and in Jesus' name over everyone here gathered in person and online. Lord, this Mother's Day, may we know your love, your nurture, your care. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.